It's the Victorian Variety Show. Friends of the fleeting skate, behold in this a wrinkomaniac's dream of earthly bliss. Sketched by the frantic pen of one who thinks that heaven is paved with everlasting rinks, where cherubs sweep forever in a day, smooth, tepid ice that never melts away, while graceful, gay, good-natured lovers blend to endless tune in circles without end. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast, in which I've been taking an in-depth look at aspects of life during the Victorian era that often don't get as much attention as perhaps they should in an academic setting or in media representations of that time period for two seasons now. And I am very pleased to report that this episode marks the start of season three. I didn't realize that we were nearing the end of season two when I put out my most recent episode two weeks ago. And I really don't think it makes a difference whether I break this show up into seasons since I haven't really taken a break since this show started. But at the same time, I'm happy to have two years of this podcast under my belt now and starting off year three. And I feel I'm starting it off on a high note. And hopefully you will too. My name is Marissa, and the poem I just read, titled Wrinklemania, is credited to Georges du Maurier, and I originally found it on a webpage, which I'll include a link to in the show notes, called The Poetry of Skating, which includes several poems about skating that were included in a 1905 publication of the same name. But on doing a little digging, I learned that, among other things, Du Maurier was not only the grandfather of the writer Daphne Du Maurier, with whom you may be familiar, but was also a cartoonist for the satirical magazine Punch, which I devoted a full episode to some time ago, and have also mentioned in a number of other episodes. And, as it turns out, Rinkomania appeared alongside an illustration that shows a number of well-dressed Victorians enjoying themselves on the ice in the January 16, 1875 issue of Punch, and I thought it would be a perfect introduction to this week's episode, in which I bring you a conversation I had with Ryan Stevens last month about Victorian-era figure skating. Ryan is a former figure skater and judge from Halifax, Nova Scotia, who's been writing about figure skating history since 2013 on his blog, SkateGuard, and also writes for the oldest continuously published skating periodical in the world, the U.S. figure skating's magazine called Skating. He served as a consultant for a number of museum and television programs, and has also written a biography on Victorian-era skating pioneer Jackson Haynes, called Jackson Haynes, The Skating King, which will be published this fall. I really enjoyed talking to Ryan, even though I was having technical issues that day and my Wi-Fi completely died at one point, but luckily we were able to reconnect and finish our conversation. And I learned a great deal about figure skating, both prior to and during the Victorian era. I think you'll enjoy our conversation as well. So, with no further ado, here's my conversation with Ryan Stevens. Great to have you here uh, to start out. I would just like to open it up to you to talk a little bit about yourself and how you became involved in figure skating. So I was a competitive skater myself. 
uh, back in the 90s. Uh, around the same time uh, that I was competing, I also got certified to be a judge. So I did that for a little while. Uh, very much enjoyed it. Uh, when I stopped, shortly after I stopped skating, I kind of got out of skating completely for about 10 years. And I was looking for a way to get involved again. Uh, so in 2013, I started a blog. I was kind of doing uh, what a lot of people in the skating world do. Uh, and just talking about current events, uh, doing some interviews and things like that. And then I really, but I was doing the odd historical blog. And I really kind of discovered that that was more my niche. And uh, decided to ditch everything else and focus all of my attention on the historical side of skating, and I've enjoyed it so much. I, I, I could tell that from looking at your blog. Uh, I was really impressed. Uh, your blog is called SkateGuard, and I was, uh, I was spending a lot of time on it today, just looking up the different articles and things. And what I was curious about, like, I don't know what the process is as far as like training to become a skater or a judge or anything like that but i was wondering if skating history is something that you have a lot of exposure to like when you're training as a skater and a judge or if that's something that you kind of discovered on your own like if you could just talk a little bit more about that because i'm really really interested in how you got into the history aspect of it so it's something that it's really my curiosity that got me involved, uh, that got me interested in skating history in the first place. Back in the days uh, when I was skating, there was no such thing as YouTube. Uh, you couldn't, if you wanted to see a performance that happened, you know, 10, 20 years ago, you couldn't just Google any of that. And a lot of the books that were out at the time really didn't have a lot of history or a lot of the information in the books was contradictory. That's something that I really found. And I think it was my curiosity to know about what happened before. And I love to read and just kind of a, as I went through the process of doing research, realizing that there were all of these resources that weren't being tapped into in the information that was already out there. A lot of the skating books that existed just kind of relied on a book that came out 10 years ago or 20 years ago, and they weren't really digging any deeper. So that's something that I wanted to do. But in terms of having that exposure, I think young skaters today have a lot more exposure because there, were a, because there are resources that are available to them if they want to become more educated about the historical aspect. But there, I'll be honest, there are a lot of people in the skating community just, that just don't have that interest. So it's been a, it's been such a fun experience to kind of expose people that don't really know a lot about the history or, or didn't have that interest before to something new. You said a lot of the people that are in the skating community really are not that interested. So do you find that the people who are interested are more outside the skating community or? What I find is that there is definitely an audience that's interested in skating history in the sport, but it's, it's not, it's not so much the younger crowd, not so much skaters that are currently participating, but it's a lot of it's uh, coaches, judges, skaters that are retired that are wanting to learn more about the past. So that's a big part of it. But I do think there's also, uh, there are also people that have an interest in sports history in general 
that want to learn a lot about uh, skating history. So that's that's a big thing as well. Yeah. So I noticed on SkateGuard that you said you've amassed a big collection of print and other materials. Like I think you mentioned you have a lot of articles, like newspaper articles, books, videos, that type of stuff. Uh, what are some research skills that you think are helpful in, uh, I guess, developing a system of organizing that much material, verifying authenticity? I think you mentioned a few minutes ago that sometimes you find contradictory material, which is something that I've come across in my own research. Like, what are some skills that I guess have helped you with doing this type of research and this type of organization of material? That's an amazing question. One thing that I would say is that, number one, always use your judgment about a source, but also be willing to look at a lot of different sources. One thing that I think is so untapped in a lot of people's research are really taking the time to, to use the resources that are now available in terms of newspaper archives. And that's such a powerful resource that wasn't available 10 years ago necessarily because things weren't digitized to the same extent that they are now. Yes, you might have been able to go to a library if you could track down uh, a library and archive that had those holdings in person. But now that there are so many wonderful newspaper archives available, I think that that's a wonderful resource that you have to tap into. I think uh, magazines and periodicals, especially in the skating world, uh, we've been lucky, not so much now, but in the past, there were... Uh, all around the world, uh, magazines, newsletters, and periodicals were such a huge thing because it's such a niche sport. But I think that that's something that anybody who's doing uh, historical research can tap into. And I think also making connections with archivists and librarians, talking about what your problem is and, and brainstorming with people as to where you can find those resources. I think books are great, but I really caution people when it comes to more contemporary books to go back to primary sources or older sources. I found in the case of, of the research for my next book that came out that to be honest, pretty much anything that was written after 1900 just kept on repeating the same misinformation. And, and that does happen. I think, it, I think you touched on a lot of important points there that it's good to know like what types of research are out there, but it's also not a good idea to get too attached to one type of research and be willing to go out there. And, uh, and this is something I don't do, like I don't get to do this enough, like talk to historians and archivists. I would like to start doing that more as I go on, but it's just like, like a time factor right now and an access factor. But I think that's definitely important. Like you've touched upon a lot of good, different means of doing research because it's all, it's all very important and you can get all types of different perspectives doing that. Genealogy is a big thing too. That's such an untapped resource as well. You can do such wonderful research just by, you know, sifting around on genealogy sites. I found a lot of gems that way. Yeah, definitely. That's a that's a good point too. That's uh, that's wonderful. So from what I can see from the research that I've done, ice skating was around uh, in some way, shape, or form for it looked like hundreds or even thousands of years. Like it's just been going back a long time. But it seems like it, I guess, became more popular starting in the 
18th century and then it just like exploded in the 19th century in popularity. Uh, I don't know if I'm entirely right, but that was just the impression that I got in um, doing some research on my own. But I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about how that happened. Like maybe, I guess, what are some factors that led to this increase in popularity and also some key developments in the sport that happened during this time? Great question. So skating as in some form has been around for centuries, as you said. Back in prehistoric times, people used animal bones as a mode of transportation just to propel themselves across the ice, usually using a staff or a stick as well. But if you look at uh, paintings from the old Dutch and Flemish, Flemish masters, you can see that skating was a popular pastime in Europe in the 17th century. But it, you're right, though, it really was probably in the late, late 18th century and certainly in the 19th century that skating exploded. Uh, there are quite a few factors to that. In 19, sorry, pardon me, in 1772, that's a little bit, 1972 is a, is a couple centuries too late. Uh, in 1772, the first English language book about figure skating was written. And shortly after, uh, there were some notable books about skating in France and Germany as well. Uh, but figure skating developed differently at a different pace in each country. And how things developed in England were very different to how they developed in North America. There was a style of skating in England that became known as the English style. That was a very, I don't want to say rigid, but it was a very, um, if you look at the style of skating you see today and you see, you know, people using their arms and, and being expressive uh, in their movement, it was nothing like that. It was a very kind of a ramrod style, very motionless, uh, quick turns, no bending of the knee. That was very, very popular in England. In North America, you had kind of a different development of that style, but what they were more interested in was in the patterns that were carved out in the ice. So that became known as special figures or fancy skating. So in that particular style, they were more concerned with, you know, creating these elaborate patterns on the ice that, you know, people were trying to draw their own, uh, to carve out their own names, things like that. Uh, and ringlets, they called them, uh, and grapevines. So that's what was very popular in North America. But in terms of bigger factors, really, I think that the three things to look at would be in the 19th century, that's when skating clubs really started taking off, both in North America and in Europe. Uh, in London, in England, uh, the Skating Club, that's how it was just known as the Skating Club, uh, was founded in 1830. And it was just shy of 20 years before a skating club, the first in the United States, uh, the Skaters Club of the City and County of Philadelphia. That was the first skating club in, um, in America. That's when that was founded. And in Canada, there were uh, skating clubs being formed around the same time. So the development of clubs played a huge factor in terms of the development of the sport. But I think it's very important to recognize that skating, skating as in any uh, recreational pursuit at the time was tied uh, completely in with class and access to those skating clubs would not have been available to everyone. Okay, that's actually an excellent point. I'm glad you brought that up because I do try in this show quite a bit when there's a distinction between 
class, with, if something was accessible to members of a, of a certain class uh, and wasn't to another, I, I definitely like to explain that as much as possible because I'd like people to be aware of that. Because I think a lot of times when the Victorian era is portrayed, we only see the upper class, the aristocracy, or at least the very wealthy people, and we don't see the working classes, say, portrayed. So I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. I do remember when I was doing my two-parter on physical culture during the Victorian era a few months ago, that uh, open-air gyms opened up in, I, I remember, I remember the one was in Scotland. I don't remember so much so the ones that are were in England, but was there anything like that uh, during the Victorian era for skating? Maybe like some kind of some kind of open air thing that maybe people who couldn't afford. Oh, absolutely. So I mean, skating people of all classes skated. I don't want I don't want to give the impression that they didn't, but they just didn't have access to those clubs where they would have been able to participate in carnivals, where they would have been able to compete if they wanted to, where they would have had connections in the skating world, but they absolutely skated. They skated on frozen ponds and canals and uh, streams and rivers all over the place. So people of all classes skated and open air. So when it comes to skating, at that time, it was very much an outdoor activity. So the weather played a huge factor, but covered rinks started coming into play uh, during the Victorian era and Bringing the sport inside caused a whole uh, other wealth of issues because Victorian attitudes at the time, there was a lot of opposition to skating indoors. It wasn't seen as, as something that was helpful. So there was a bit of a debate about that at the time, certainly earlier on in the Victorian era. But with skating, it was more about bringing the sport indoors than it was about uh putting it outdoors. So you were you were talking about the outdoor rinks, so if you wouldn't mind, I don't know how much I missed, probably a lot. <laughs> okay, okay. So just to talk a little bit about outdoor rinks. So in the skating world, uh, whereas with other sports where they, where they might have been indoor sports where they'd be bringing them outside as a health thing, in skating, it was always seen as a healthful outdoor exercise. But bringing it indoors during the 19th century, when uh, covered rinks started to be a thing, was kind of a hot topic of, of discussion at the time. It wasn't seen as very healthful. Covered rinks back then weren't the same as you would think about them, uh, think of them today necessarily. A lot of times they were just open structures on either end with a, with a big coal stove in there and close quarters and very crowded Um Breathing in a lot of smoke, probably, uh, so wasn't necessarily the most healthful thing. So uh, in skating, it was always considered much more healthy to skate outside. And it really, and actually until the late 1960s, that was the last time that the World Figure Skating Championships was actually held outside. So they were held outside for many years after the Victorian era and indoors as well. So who were some, would you say, people that helped to, I guess, make the sport what it was during the Victorian era? And if you want to start talking about Jackson Haynes now, that would be, that would be wonderful. 
Well, to be honest with you, he is the person to talk about. So I would love to start talking about Jackson Haynes. He really pretty much singularly changed the sport and brought in the style of skating that we know today that it, that is not just carving out figures on the ice that had to do with bringing dance to the ice that had to do with artistry and theater on ice. And he did that by leaving a family behind in North America, going to Europe and touring in every single country imaginable, performing before royals, performing before huge crowds, performing shows where he donated money back uh, to the cities where he performed for the poor in those cities, but really bringing a lot of attention to the sport. Before that, in North America, yes, there were shows, there were competitions, but everything was just more local. And the style that would be popular in, you know, Toronto would be different than the style that was popular in New York to the style that was popular in Chicago. Whereas when Jackson Haynes traveled around Europe, he was really kind of popular, popularizing a single style of skating in capital cities uh, throughout Europe during the Victorian era. So he played a, a huge role. There were other skaters that did the same thing after him and around the same and around the end of the time that he was performing as well. But he was really the main one that ushered in that new style. And that in the years following his death in 1875, that style of skating only grew in popular in popularity. And by the Edwardian era, it was just huge. What are some, I, I guess, characteristics of Jackson Haynes's style that we might be more familiar with today watching, um, like, I guess maybe either things that he started or maybe things that skaters that came after him built upon? Like, what, are, what would you say are some characteristics of his style? Well, first I'm going to talk, I'll talk about characteristics, but first I want to talk about those first that you asked about that other skaters have built upon. So the sit spin, uh, if you watch skating and you see a spin where people are in a sitting position, that's something that he started. Bringing ballet to the ice is something that he started. So those are definitely too big firsts for him. But in terms of his style and some characteristics of him, he was extremely, extremely showy. He performed not just on ice, but on what they called parlor skates back then. Uh, we know them as roller skates today. So he would go to theaters. He would uh, he actually performed probably more on rollers than he did on ice, just based on weather. So if he went to a city, you know, if, if the ice was frozen, then he would perform on the ice. If it was the summertime, obviously, he'd be on the, the, the local theater stage. But he used very theatrical costumes very showy a very showy style that was based on pose and that was something uh that he was very much known for and that only grew in time as well as other skaters kind of copied what he did he had a lot of students when he was uh touring throughout europe that went on to kind of become movers and shakers in the skating world certainly in scandinavia and austria especially and that style flourished as a result of their work as well who were some of the other skaters, I guess, that maybe during the Victorian era, if you want to go in the Edwardian era too, that's fine because uh, a lot of the topics I cover, uh, they actually, it actually goes into the Edwardian era as well as before the Victorian era when it applies. But who are some other skaters from that era that um, either we might know about or we should know about? 
Well, I can think of I can think of a few off the top of my head. Uh, starting with a man named Louis Rubinstein. He was a Canadian skater, and he traveled to compete in an international competition. He won he won many uh, competitions in uh, Canada and the United States during the Victorian era. He traveled to Russia to compete in a major international competition. It was, I believe, in 1890, and was treated appallingly when he was there. Uh, Rubinstein, he was Jewish, and that was not uh, something that was very welcome in St. Petersburg, Russia at the time. He was told by the police uh, that he had to leave immediately, and they ended up allowing him to stay ultimately uh, to compete in the competition, and he won a gold medal there. But very important pioneer uh, for skating not only in Canada, but in the United States. Another incredibly important uh, pioneer, and this is going more into the Edwardian era, is a woman named Madge Sires. She was the first woman to compete at the World Figure Skating Championships in 1902. She competed against the men, and she competed because no one told her that she couldn't compete. There was no separate competition for women. There was no rule at the time saying women couldn't compete, but no one ever thought that that would happen. But she did. She finished second out of four skaters. There was a, there's a long-standing story, which I think there is some truth to based on some research that I've done, saying that the uh, man who won actually gave his gold medal from that event uh, to her. But she was the very first woman uh, to uh, win the world championships once they made a separate category for women a few years later. Uh, she was the first woman to win uh, the, an Olympic gold medal when skating was included for, in the Olympics for the very first time, it was in the Summer Games in 1908. But an incredibly important pioneer. Uh, there's, actually a, uh, there's actually a film in the works about her, uh, so uh, I can't uh, give you a date yet on that, uh, but I know the person that's doing it, and they're going to do an amazing job. It's a fascinating story. So those are two really important pioneers. Also during that time, there was a man named, uh, a Swedish man, named Ulrich Salkow. If you've ever heard of the Salkow jump in skating, it's named after him. He won the first uh, men's Olympic title in 1908, and he won the world championships 10 times, which is un unheard of. Uh, and he went on to become the president of the International Skating Union uh, in, in, his, uh, in his golden years. But uh, those were three very, very important Victorian Edwardian uh, skating pioneers, for sure. That's awesome. I think it's important that we know who these people were because like you were saying toward the beginning of this interview, like a lot of people are really, really interested in the sport. The, the ice skating was always a huge draw in the Olympics whenever it was on. And uh, I think it would, be, I, I think a lot of people would actually enjoy hearing about the pioneers in this sport and um, the history of it. I think that's fascinating. Oh, I, I do too, obviously. <laughs> I noticed something else on your blog that I really liked. You said that, uh, I think this was on the, the, about, the About Me page, you said that you don't cover well-documented events such as Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. And I'm not going to ask you about that because, uh, you know, that... That was a huge thing. It got a ton of coverage. There was a really good movie called I, Tanya that came out a few years ago. Yeah. Yes, I saw it. I saw it. But I was wondering, was there, I like to, I like to look at 
when there was like a scandal during the Victorian era. I don't talk about it too much, but I might mention it every once in a while if it applies. Were there ever any like scandals in the ice skating world during the Victorian era? Like maybe not on that scale, but. (laughs) Not on that scale, but during the Victorian and certainly the Edwardian era, there were, there were definitely some controversy controversies. Madge Sires, who I talked about earlier, being the first woman to compete against the men, that was definitely at the number one of the list. That was huge. Another another controversy, and I love this story. It's one of my favorite stories to talk about because it's so interesting. Shortly after that, there was, in North America, they had a competition called the Championships of America. In 1906, a woman applied to compete against the men, just like Madge Sires did in Europe. And she was told, absolutely not. You're not willing to, you're not permitted to compete. Her story is wild. Her name was Isabella Butler. She was a, uh, a stunt automobile driver in Barnum and Bailey's Circus. She did something called the Dip of Death, where she went across a racetrack. And it came off of the racetrack. She did a turn in the air and landed on the same track on the other side. So, and then after she got told that she couldn't go in the skating championship, she said, well, all right, I love to skate, so I'm going to skate. So she gave up the circus. She uh, went on the vaudeville circus and skated in uh, vaudeville shows on little tanks of ice with her, with her pair's partner. And then in New York, she uh, started one of the first skating classes specifically for women fascinating, fascinating woman. And a lot of people don't know her story. I did a blog on her years ago, but I, I love talking about her because that it's just, it, it sounds like something out of a movie, but it's, it, it's absolutely true. It's wild. I, I'm loving this conversation. This is really fantastic. I am definitely looking forward to, to reading your book when it comes out. Uh, I know you've written some, some books before this one, but if you could talk maybe a little more about this book and maybe what differentiates this book that's coming out from ones you've written in the past, that would be, that would be great. Yeah, completely different in every respect. So uh, the first three books that I did uh, were all reference books, very much facts and figures, something you'd have, on, not necessarily something that you'd sit down and read from cover to cover, but something that you would, you know, if, if you said, oh, I want to know about this skater, you know, you, you'd pull it off of the shelf to look up a piece of information. This is a biography and it's full of information that's simply not out there. I was very fortunate to uh, work with the uh, World Figure Skating Museum in Colorado Springs and the K.H. Renlund's Museum in in Kokola, Finland. That's where he passed away. And they were both absolutely, with the resources they were able to help me with, uh, this book wouldn't have happened at all without their help and support. uh, And I'm so appreciative of that. But the book is a biography. It's very much setting the record straight about a skater whose life has very much been uh, shrouded in myth for over a century. And I kind of tried to find a fine balance between something that is academic and something that is also appealing to anybody who wants to have that history. I had to fact check everything uh, very rigorously, uh, but it's all footnoted because I wanted the information that's in the book to appeal to both historians, but also to people that just have a lot of curiosity about who this man was and what his role in the sport was. And I, I don't want to give I don't want to give too much away, but 
there are aspects of this man's story that make you very much like him. And there are aspects of his story that don't make you life, like him as much. Quite an element of tragedy to the story. So it's a pretty interesting read. I, I think that people that, uh, I think whether or not uh, you're coming from a skating background or not, I think you're going to be quite shocked uh, by who the father of figure skating uh, really was. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I personally like when uh, when there's somebody like, as you said, there are things to like about them and then there are things to not like about them. I think that just shows that it's a very complex topic and it's just one you want to you want to find out as much as possible about it. So that's that's fantastic. Like I said, I'm really looking forward to your book. And I would like to just give you an opportunity now to, uh, if there's anything else you'd like to plug or just anything else you'd like to talk about, I'd like to open that up to you. I just love more people uh, to learn about skating history. Um, I have a blog. I've had one for 10 years. It's at skateguard1.blogspot.ca completely searchable. So if you want to learn about skating in the 90s or you want to learn about skating in the 1890s, it's all there. I have three books as well. I'll be honest, if you're not coming from a skating background, I'm not sure if those books are going to be the books for you. But this one, if you're interested in history, this next one absolutely is. It's called Jackson Haynes, The Skating King. Uh, You can order it. Uh, It's available for pre-order on Barnes & Noble. And it's going to be out on November 1st. It'll be out all over the place then. And I'd love to have you read it. And uh, you can find me on social media. If you search for SkateGuard Blog, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, YouTube, Instagram, you name it. I would really like to thank Ryan Stevens for coming on this show and talking to me. And I will include links to his work and where you can find him in the show notes. And I hope you'll check out his work. I definitely feel that the history of figure skating deserves attention, especially given the popularity of figure skating competitions. And the SkateGuard blog is a fantastic place to start. And you can pre-order Ryan's upcoming book, Jackson Haynes, The Skating King, on a number of websites, including Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com. And now, I would love to know what you think. Email me at thevictorianvarietyshow at gmail.com. Or leave me a voice message at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash marissa hyphen d96 slash message. If you're still on the platform formerly known as Twitter, now known as X, although I don't really know how many people are calling it that, you can also follow me there if you don't already at twitter.com slash victorianvariety1. And you can also follow me on threads at threads.net slash at marissadf13. If you'd like to support the show financially, there are a few ways you can do that. You can become a monthly supporter for as little as 99 cents U.S. a month at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash marissa hyphen d96 slash support. Or you can make a one-time donation by buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13 on my Linktree page at linktree slash the Victorian Variety Show or if you're listening on the Good Pods app. And finally, I'd greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, Podchaser, Audible, or wherever you listen, as that will help this podcast reach more listeners. I really hope you enjoyed this Season 3 premiere episode and my conversation with Ryan Stevens. I am hoping to have more guests on in the coming months. 
I feel interviews can give us a unique perspective into the topics that I cover on this show, and I definitely don't do enough of them. I plan to be back in two weeks with a brand new episode on a topic that I've been looking forward to covering for some time. But for now, I'm going to leave you with some words from a poet whom I'm sure you've read if you've ever taken it in English Lit class, William Wordsworth. But what you might not have known, I'll admit that I didn't, is that, according to Annalee Talent, in Become an Instant Expert on William Wordsworth, the ice skating poet, Wordsworth also had a quote-unquote passion for ice skating, which was reflected in a scene that I'm about to read from his autobiographical poem, The Prelude. Wordsworth apparently started writing this poem in his late 20s and continued to work on it throughout his life, and it wasn't published until several months after his death at the age of 80 in 1850. This scene, in which Wordsworth recounts a childhood skating experience, appears in the first of the prelude's 14 books. And in the frosty season, when the sun was set and visible for many a mile, the cottage windows through twilight blazed. I heeded not the summons. Happy time, it was indeed for all of us. For me, it was a time of rapture. Clear and loud, the village clock told six. I wheeled about, proud and exulting, like an untired horse that cares not for his home all shod with steel, we hissed along the polished ice in games, confederate, imitative of the chase, and woodland pleasures, the resounding horn, the pack loud bellowing, and the hunted hare. So through the darkness and the cold we flew, and not a voice was idle, with the din, smitten, the precipices rang aloud. The leafless trees and every icy crag tinkled like iron, while the distant hills into the tumult sent an alien sound of melancholy, not unnoticed, while the stars eastward were sparkling clear, and in the west the orange sky of evening died away. Not seldom from the uproar I retired into a silent bay, or sportively glanced sideway, leaving the tumultuous throng to cut across the reflex of a star that fled and, flying still before me, gleamed upon the glassy plain, and oftentimes, when we had given our bodies to the wind, and all the shadowy banks on either side came sweeping through the darkness, spinning still the rapid line of motion. Then, at once, have I, reclining back upon my heels, stopped short. Yet still, the solitary cliffs wheeled by me, even as if the earth had rolled with visible motion her diurnal round. Behind me did they stretch in solemn train, feebler and feebler, and I stood and watched, till all was tranquil as a dreamless sleep.'"